The Astraea Trilogy Written and read by Seymour Hamilton Book Two The Men of the Sea Chapter Seven Part Two When Astraea awoke, he panicked. He knew he was awake, but when he blinked, he could see again the debauched, dancing figures of the sailors, and feel again the curious blend of revulsion and desire to join in the revelry. The vision faded slowly, and his cabin came into focus, but the memory continued to haunt him. He lay rigid, unmoving, his muscles tensed against themselves as his body echoed his conflicting desires. For days he'd been learning a wealth of knowledge by day and wishing for Lindy by night. Now he had seen another side of his heritage, and he was as disgusted with the men as he was appalled by his grandfather. It was not the roistering itself that bothered him, but the mindlessness of men so lost to their own humanity that they could laugh at each other's misfortune, as he had done as well. A dark pit of self-knowledge opened before him, filled with violence, of which he had thought himself incapable. Could he, like Oron, push men over the rail to drown, struggling hopelessly for breath, their hands tied? Astraea's fingers found the bracelet on his arm, and he turned it this way and that. He recalled the moment on the way to Charton, where he had knelt in the springy grasses of the hillside with Lindy beside him, knowing in that moment how she had become inexpressibly important to him. In his almost total recall of the morning there was only one lack. He found he could not imagine Lindy's face. His artist's recall was flawed, perhaps because the fleeting expressions that made her face individual were blurred in his memory, the more so because he did not know how he could ever tell her about the previous night. It was not only that he had been mistaken in honouring the men of the sea, but also that he was becoming a part of what he rejected in them. The contradictions unresolved, he fell back into dreamless sleep. A fist pounded on his cabin door. "'The master commands you to his cabin at once.' The shout was a curious blend of deference and demand. After a moment's thought, Astrea decided it must have been Oron's stoop-shouldered servant, who he had not heard speak before. Astrea rolled out of bed and groaned. His head felt as if it had been struck a vicious blow from the inside. He staggered to his feet, buttoned his shirt, and tightened his belt before unbolting his door and stepping into the passageway. Men came and went on their duties, passing him as he made his way towards the master's cabin. Some of them wore the sheepish grins of people who were also suffering the aftermath of the night's excess. One wore a bandage across one eye, and still another limped painfully. All of them seemed passive, as if drained of life itself. Astraea knew how they were feeling, because he felt the same emptiness himself. He knocked and entered Oron's cabin, expecting to see the old man's white head bowed over the day's chart-work and calculations. Instead, the master's pale-eyed gaze skewered him. Oron sat in sunshine falling through the stern lights, his white wings of hair pushed on either side of his face like drawn curtains. His lips were compressed into a disdainful line that was far more daunting than his testy corrections of Astraea's navigation. By his shoulder stood Adramin, a look of profound self-satisfaction on his lean face. "'Why were you not here last night?' demanded Oron, his old man's voice brittle. "'I,' stammered Astraea, I, "'I was on deck with the men, and then I went to my cabin.' 
You drank with the men? Oron's voice was incredulous. Astrea nodded. Adramin bent from the waist to speak above Oron's ear, but his voice was loud enough for Astrea to hear, and his eyes gloated. I tried to speak with him, but he was too far gone, said Adramin. Oron nodded, as if convinced by a fact that he had not wanted to acknowledge. Astrea looked from one face to the other. Could Adramin have told him to go to the master's cabin? Had he spoken after they both had quaffed the first drink at the mainmast? Estrella was not sure enough to challenge what Oron had accepted as truth. "'Well?' demanded Oron. "'I—I I didn't hear,' said Estrella lamely. As the words left his lips, Estrella knew he had condemned himself by a weak excuse that disgusted the old man. "'So,' said Oron, "'you preferred the company of men on their revels to that of your own family. "'You have failed in courtesy.' I find this a bitter insult to me and to your heritage, in which you should by now have learned to take pride. I should have known. Blood will tell. You only look like my Estrella. In you the blood is diluted. Adramin smiled, which spurred Estrella to anger. Tell me what I missed, he blurted. Tell me how and why I failed. I, if I don't understand— then you'll have the satisfaction of knowing your suspicions confirmed. "'You ignored the family rituals,' said Abdomen. "'You curried favour with the men by joining them in their lewdness, just like your first day when you would have taken food with them.' "'I had one drink, as you did,' snapped Estrella, ignoring the unfairness of the older issue. "'Then Mirak advised me to go to bed in my cabin.' "'Then return there until you are sober,' said Oron. First. "'Go clean yourself up. You're a disgrace.' With Adramin's look of satisfaction still in his mind, Estrella went back to his cabin and lay down on his bed. A few moments later, a few moments later, he got up and removed the best shirt he had worn the night before, which smelled of stale sweat and vomit. He went to the shower, washed himself vigorously in salt water until his skin tingled, then returned to his cabin opened the scuttle and tried to glimpse the horizon as Cygnus rose to the swells. Confused memories of the night before swam in front of his eyes as if reenacted on the pattern of the waves. Images of Alana blended with nightmare scenes of debauch. Longing to see Lindy contended with the conviction that he was no longer worthy even to dream of her. Eventually exhaustion claimed him and he slept. A voice at his door woke him. The master will see you at the forbidden room in a count of five hundred. Estrella sat up swiftly, his head spinning, trying to refocus his thoughts on the present. A moment passed while he wondered how long he had been sleeping, until from the angle of the light through the open scuttle he realized it was late afternoon. He had slept the day away. He called his thanks, but the man had already gone. He tried to shrug off a confusion of dreams and realities as he dressed quickly in his daily clothes. Astrea paused at the door that opened only to Oron's and his touch. Thinking the master must already be in the room, he placed his hand on the metal, felt it tingle, pushed the door open, and entered. As the door closed behind him, he saw that he was alone. He moved confidently in the darkened space, knowing from daily repetition where to find what he needed. He pulled the fabric from the table and peered down at the green stones. 
As he had learned from Oron, he passed his arm above the table, and the green light of the jewel and his bracelet played down on them, refreshing their green glow and kindling an answering white fire at their centres. When the shipstone and the echo stones gently pulsed with their own light, Estrella leaned on the edge of the table staring at them, feeling that somehow they had become the ships that they represented, and that if his sight was only keen enough he would discern the men and women who sailed them. He contemplated the pattern, realizing how much the ships had converged over the last few days. Estrella traced his finger along the coastline, closest to where he guessed the rendezvous might be, searching for an appropriate spot to locate a city. The chart made by the men of the sea only marked the edges of the sea. Its cartographers had little interest in what was onshore, beyond a scant indication of a few villages or towns, and only the occasional name on an inlet, river, or other indentation in the coastline, such as the big bay of Charton, where his journey with the men of the sea had begun. There were no names on the coastline anywhere near where the ships were heading. As he examined the chart, he again became mindful of Lindy. The desire to see, touch, talk, and be with her washed over him. He turned toward the shelf that held the echo stones for the clasps. Among several dark stones, one glowed gently but steadily. Astrea was sure it was the stone Gar had given to Lindy. He felt that there had to be a way to use this link between them, at least to find out where she was. He was about to see if pulsing his own stone might affect hers, when a curious tingling came from his bracelet. His right hand crossed his body and covered his green stone without conscious thought. He massaged his arm and looked into his stone. Was it his imagination, or had its green fire become paler? Then he looked into the pit within the table and drew his breath in harshly. The stone, representing elusive, was not nearly as bright as it had been when he located it for Oron the day before. And at the edge of the circle, the echo stone for Spindrift, which had been glowing dimly when Oron pointed it out, now lay in the darkness, and wanly illuminated by the other stones, itself no more than a big, water-worn pebble. The door swung open behind him. Estrella braced himself for further criticism and disdain. "'What are you doing?' demanded Oron. "'I came to be alone,' said Estrella. "'But something happened.' "'I know. I felt it,' murmured the old man, as he moved into the green light that shone upwards from the table. "'Something tingled my arm, and when I looked, "'Spindrift is gone!' hissed Oron. The old man clutched the circular lip of the table, his clenched hands deathly, in the green light. He held out his hand over the stone that had been Spindrift's, but it remained a dull grey. "'Only three of the eight left!' he muttered. I hope this year there might be one more, not this. Oron's craggy face twisted, and his lips drew back from his teeth, as if the old man's mouth refused to speak his thoughts. Estrella stood quietly, amazed at how much he shared Oron's distress. It was the moment for him to say that he knew Spindrift and its crew were gone, and he had known long before their stone had died. But before he could speak, Oron moved so abruptly toward the door that he almost fell. Estrella stretched out a hand as the old man swayed forward, his face haggard in the green light. "'Come, Estrella, more sail!' Estrella covered the table and followed his grandfather up to the deck and on to the ship's starboard side, 
near the command position. Adramin and Mirak stood beside the sternpost, talking with their heads lowered. When Mirak noticed Oron, he touched Adramin's arm, and they both saluted and came close to Oron, who gripped the rail with both pale hands, giving orders Astraea could not hear. Adramin strode away shouting, and Cygnus came alive with men running, hauling, and at times cursing as they raised more sail. Soon the ship leaned away from the wind and strained forward. The easy action of the previous hours changed to an urgent, throbbing rush, punctuated by a faint check as Cygnus plunged her bowsprit into every fifth or seventh swell. Adramin made the rounds of the deck, checking that all was as it should be under the new press of sail, and returned to the command position where Astraea stood beside his grandfather, wondering how the old man was able to stand unmoved in wind that whipped his cloak around his legs. "'You have the ship, Mirak,' said Oron. "'I need not tell you to rouse us for any change whatsoever. "'My family will dine below, but we are by no means off duty.' "'At your command,' replied Mirak, with a sidelong glance, first at Adramin, then Astraea. They made their way across the slanting deck and down to the master's cabin, where Oron's servant helped him out of his cloak, and then followed closely as the old man moved to his chair. Cygnus was heeled so far over that there was no question of eating at the big table. Instead, the stoop-necked man had clipped three chairs to pad eyes around a small table caged in jimbles and dangling from the deck head, to which he brought a tray of biscuits, smoked fish and greens, along with a jug of beer. When they were seated, he withdrew to let them help themselves. Compared to all of Astraea's other interactions with Oron, the meal was almost informal. They sat round the table in a triangle, under a solitary gas-light that flared on the end of its pipe like a blue-green butterfly. On his grandfather's face, Astraea saw the tension of a man with more problems than he could readily solve. The old man looked exhausted, but he still maintained a facade of authority. Astraea saw the shadows slide across his pale, angular face, and decided he could render a likeness in heavy charcoal, or perhaps by blackening the whole picture, and then capturing his face by overlaying white only where the light fell. Oron poured three beakers, touched them together, and handed one to Adramin and the other to Astraea, who contrived to copy the ritual first sips. Thereafter, most of the meal took place in silence. Astraea barely noticed that the food was different from what he had been served every day, the green leafy stuff was crisper, almost minty, the ship's biscuit tasted less like wood, and the smoked fish and beer seemed almost as good as at the village. Though he was hungry, he ate and drank sparingly, conscious of Adramin's brooding mood on his left. They sat in silence until Oron's servant brought them the hot drink that was Cygnus' version of tea. Adramin's voice rose above the sea sounds of water and the straining of the ship. Tidewalker, Stella, Eclipse, Sea Child, Whisper, all lost, and now Spindrift, leaving only Silver Swan, Elusive, and Cygnus. What happened, do you suppose? Hope and sea, murmured Oron. Weather, mischance, mismanagement. We'll never know. Alnar is, was, a good commander, said Adramin, and he made sense at the ship's meetings. "'He was an appeaser, and you know it, Adramin. 
snapped Oron. He would have had us make contact with landsmen for the mere sake of convenience. He gave too many of the lesser stones to his men, and I always suspected that he did not take proper care of the secrets. He paused and then added in a gentler tone, Still, I hoped his coasting forays might find us another ship. Estrella frowned at the contradictions in Oron's reply. The news of the loss of Spindrift had cost the old man grief, but it had made Adramin edgy. If acquiring a new ship is acceptable to you, Adramin continued, then why not deal openly with those who can provide what we need? Estrella watched the two faces across the table. Oron stared at the tabletop. His white hair fell forward, shadowing his face. Adramin spoke almost recklessly, without the deference he was usually careful to show. And the same goes for maintenance as well. Why should we have to careen and scrape the hull when the lubbers will do it for us? And what about the metalwork we need? Landsmen have smelted and forged for generations, and that's something we can't do easily aboard ship. What can it hurt to improve their skills with what we know and can't use, and save ourselves the trouble of working scrap that has been cast and recast too often? "'It can hurt,' said Oron, without raising his head. "'It has hurt us in the past.' He spoke monotonously, as if deliberately turning his mind to his own concerns. "'Remember Tidewalker,' said Adramin, perversely intent on pursuing the subject that caused Oron pain. "'The two men you de- uh, <clears throat> the men who were executed were from ashore.' They told Estrella and Gianfar what lubbers can do. That's why the two of them went, "'Do not speak of it!' said Oron, his voice so intense that it quavered. "'It will destroy us. First we let them forge for us, then we exchange goods, then comes the mingling of blood.' "'Like my father's marriage to my mother?' The words were out of Estrella's mouth without forethought. In the silence that followed, Adramin stared almost eagerly, looking like a child who expects to see his brother punished for using an obscene word. However, Oron ignored Estrella completely, and went on talking to Adramin as if nothing had happened. Then comes the loss of our secrets, and our very selves, and the pestilence will wake again. Estrella watched open-mouthed as Adramin pressed on. Master, said Adramin, I must ask about the meeting at the City of the Sea. You know that with Spindrift gone— the women of Silver Swan will want to disband and land. I command you to be silent, said Oron. And your only ally is gone, went on Adramin remorselessly, sensing that his advantage lay in that the old man was reacting emotionally, unlike his usual distant calm. Alner was shaky at best, but he did end up by casting in with you. Elusive will be difficult for you. "'More so because of the loss of Spindrift. "'You come close to oath-breaking,' said Oron. "'Indeed, no, master,' "'Mufred is my father and master of Elusive, "'and neither of us is an appeaser. "'We want what is best for the family and the fleet. "'We will not bargain away our honour "'or dilute our family's power. "'You can be sure of that. "'I say, take hold of what the land offers. "'Use it. "'Command the grubbers to build us more ships.' take the best of their shore-hugging crews, and make them do the work of those who can no longer pull their weight. We need young men. You know how many aboard are long past their prime. 
Like your grandfather? Estrella was not sure if the question was a challenge or a plea for understanding. Adramin let a moment's silence pass before he spoke again, in the tone of someone making a reasonable request to unquestioned authority. You are master of Cygnus and grandmaster of us all, grandfather. None can say you are not able. You command, you set the course, you decide for the family and the fleet. I only ask so that I may understand and follow your direction. The crew's different. Theirs is only to obey. They ten sail, swab decks, haul ropes. But many of them are too old to do anything but hang on to the slack most of the time. We need new, younger men to carry out my, um, our commands. Men like those aboard the Molly. The words were out of Estrella's mouth, even though he had decided to remain silent. The crab hauler that brought you south? Adrimin responded, his dark eyes catching the light of the single lamp as he glanced at Estrella. They could be useful. Mufred understands that. Such men can hand, reefs, and steer, and what they don't know they can be taught, to a point. They obey. They drink themselves into a stupor from time to time. That is their life. The master decides. The family commands. They follow orders. That is all they know or need to know. But we need more of them. We could train them, master, as you are doing with... A jealous look at Estrella completed his thought, but Oron's eyes were downcast. They will pollute, weaken, compromise the oaths. Oron's voice was strangely low, almost pleading, like someone muttering an oft-repeated prayer. Adamin continued to argue. What could be wrong with old Pegine passing on her arts for growing plants at sea? Or Chippy sharing his skill with the weldweed? His voice fell, and he added in an undertone, "'Or Adramin learning the art of the stones.' "'They are not family,' intoned Oron, either unaware of or ignoring Adramin's last words. "'Put adult landsmen among the crew, and they will envy us and seek after our secrets. "'They will ingratiate themselves, and we will be lost.' "'Well, they know about us already.' snorted Adramin. Why, this one knew before we hauled him aboard, and he's already privy to secrets that I—' He swallowed, glared at Estrella, and pressed on relentlessly. "'The skipper of the tub he sailed on knows we exist. There's another one might even be one of us, were he not sawed off at the knees. I say use them. Use their greed.' Estrella briefly wondered who his cousin might mean, but burst into speech instead. "'Make them into slaves, Adramin,' he said angrily. "'That's what you mean, isn't it?' The two men glared at each other across the swinging table. Oron looked from one to the other. "'I will not have the family divided. Adramin, you will not discuss this further lest you break faith. I was right to keep you from the forbidden room. Now, Estrella, you will listen to me and learn in silence. That is all. Now go!' Oron waved a hand dismissively. For a moment Estrella and Adramin stood facing the master as he sat, hunched in his chair. The old man, usually so calm, strong, and in command of every situation, had diminished before both of them. Estrella looked down on his grandfather's thinning white hair, and saw that the scalp underneath was blotched with age. Despite his deep dislike of Oron's tyrannical rule, he felt something akin to pity for the old man's inability to do more than dismiss Adramin and his complaints— and he wondered 
how the master might have imposed discipline when he was younger. As they turned to leave, Estrella saw satisfaction in Adrabin's eyes as he turned his salute into something close to a gesture of disrespect. Estrella climbed up the companionway into the night to serve the first watch. Cygnus was charging into the darkness, heeling to the force of a rising wind. Fine spray stung Estrella's cheeks as he followed a lifeline rigged from the companionway to the command position, where he found Mirak with a jug in one hand, pouring a hot spiced drink for the man at the wheel. Mug, young master? Estrella gratefully accepted the drink, and they stood in the near dark, balancing against the pitch and sway of the ship. Mirak, I'm no master, young or otherwise. Check the deck, young master, asked Mirak casually ignoring Astrea's disclaimer. They went out into the wind and spray-swept deck. Lantern light swayed and gleamed on wet wood and straining sails, and briefly lit whitecaps as they rushed into the darkness. The decks were spray-wet, and the lee scuppers foamed as Cygnus raced into the night. Masts, sails, and rigging quivered like the strings of a fiddle, the hull picked up the pulsations like a sounding board, and the whole ship vibrated as if alive. They followed the lifelines along the lee side, ankle-deep in water where the deck narrowed around the coachwork. Once at the foremast they had to double their grip as the bow alternately lunged skyward and then plunged into wave-tops. Estrella saw nothing ahead of the ship's hull, save for the bowsprit spearing into the tops of waves to soak the straining jib. He glimpsed the moon between clouds, rushing across the sky even faster than the ship beneath. The forward lookout clung to a safety rope by the weather horsehole, gouts of water drenching him from head to feet. "'He can't see a thing in this weather,' Estrella shouted into Miraxia. "'Tell him to take what shelter he can.' Mirak nodded and spoke with the sailor, who retreated to the foremast, where he only had to contend with spray. Once they'd returned astern, Mirak paused in the lee of the command position and took the moment out of the wind to speak. "'Very good, young master.' "'I'm young, from your point of view, I suppose, but I'm no master. Figure of speech. Picked it up from the scuttlebutt below decks. Won't do it again.' "'Thank you, Mirak.' "'Twister's down, ain't she?' "'Twister? Spindrift,' said Mirak. "'We call a twister at our end of the ship, like I told you before.' Same's sea-child as crab, elusive as sieve, silver swan's the dirty duck. Remember? You only had to see him in weather like this to know why. They called us the chicken, but that's just jealousy, cause we ride so light and dry. Estrella took a deep breath to obey Oron's demand for secrecy, but when he thought of the certainty with which Mirak had spoken, he could not deny that the stone had extinguished before his eyes. He decided to learn rather than lie. "'How did you know?' "'Some is more sensitive than others,' said Mirak. "'Happened just before the master ordered more sail, didn't it?' Estrella nodded. "'Those of us who'd ever worn a stone felt it,' said Mirak softly, "'hunching his shoulders and peering upward. "'Like a ghost walking on deck above your bunk. "'But there's a couple who were sure it was Twister, "'like it had happened in front of them, "'and they're the sort that don't make mistakes about things like that.' He fell silent and looked around as if fearing that he might be overheard. "'Are there many with this power?' Estrella asked. "'None at all, young master,' 
said Mirak in a different, almost ingratiating voice. None at all. We're all too good sailors to waste our time worrying about what goes on at your end of the ship. Strike a light with the body of the ship, not its head. That's your job. And anyone who says otherwise is a mutinous dogfish. Stimulated by Mirak's change of tone, Estrella hazarded a guess at what had been troubling him. Suppose Spindrift Twister had not been lost because of the weather. Would any one of them... "'Would anyone know the difference?' he asked. "'Then I wouldn't want to be the man who talked about it,' said Mirak firmly. "'Least not until I'd checked with a couple of the women on the dirty duck. "'They can tell you a ship's last hour if you want to hear it, "'and if they can stand to live through it again.' Estrella nodded. "'My mother is one such.' "'Well, young um, Estrella, I'd not be too loud about that "'when you go to the shipmaster's meeting.' "'From what I hear, your family ain't likely to take to the idea of a woman with the sight mixing into the family. "'That's for men who wear the green stone.' "'I wear the stone, but I don't have my mother's foretelling power.' Mirak shrugged his shoulders as high as they would go and cupped his hands round his ears. "'Can't hear you for all this water sound,' he said. "'Same way you couldn't hear me properly, could you?' "'Why?' whispered Estrella urgently, his head close to Mirak. "'What is it that holds you? "'Why must you pretend to be less than you are?' "'Ah, uh, that would be telling, young master,' said Mirak, as he turned away. Estrella made his way carefully across the water-slick deck to the aftermast, leaned against the tabernacle where the halyards were belayed, and stood listening to the sounds of Cygnus driving southward. The entire ship strained under his feet.' He knew that if it were not for the sea sounds, he would hear the hull groaning. Above his head, an aging sail shook along its luff. Only Oran's command held Estrella from ordering the sails eased to let the ship ride more comfortably. There seemed no good reason to be charging close-hauled, barely out of the wind's eye. When he looked about him, Mirak had gone, presumably back to speak to the steersman. Hoping that his watch would end soon, Estrella tried to forget about the cold, the wet, and the wind. He clung to the lee of the mainmast, questioning the sanity of Oron's sudden urgency. For a while he stood still, trying to find the energy to go on. He let his eyes close and held himself from sleep by biting his tongue. His mind almost blank, he began to hear past the sounds of the ship interacting with the wind and the sea. He became aware of voices. One complained... The other was curt and unfeeling. They were coming from behind the longboat, which lay in a cradle between the mizzen and the aftermast, indistinct in the darkness. Because Estrella was standing in the deep shadow of the mast, his black-clad body was invisible amongst the lumpy shapes of coiled ropes. He saw two figures to starboard of the boats, their faces close together, and he recognised Adramin's voice. "'What do you mean you lost it, Petal? "'I lost my sailing-glove.' "'so I took off the ring to keep it safe. "'When I got back, it was gone. "'You're telling me you carelessly lost your badge of office? "'No, sailing-master, I took proper care, even though it was dead. "'I took it off, and, well, are you now going to accuse someone of theft? "'Uh, no, sailing-master.' "'Adramin turned back for a moment, and when he spoke his voice was calm, almost musing. Now, how could anyone have known that he'd be the one who could light it up again? I mean, the lubber's scarce aboard, and he's winning races and working the stones with Oron. 
Estrella shrank closer to the mast and peered through the vertical, bar-taut halyards. The dark shape that was Betel moved almost clumsily towards the forward companionway. Estrella stood absolutely still, relying on the shadows from the mast and the halyards. Beyond the mast a yellow bar of light slanted across the deck as Betel opened the forward hatch, climbed down, and closed it behind him. In the sudden gleam Estrella saw Adramin turn and walk towards the wheelhouse. Estrella bent double, gripped the lee rail, and struggled through shin-deep water and flying spray back to the command position. "'One with experience would mind the ship more carefully.' For a moment Estrella thought Adramin was talking to him. Then, as the words continued, it was clear that they were addressed to Mirak. "'A lashing on one of the boats eased, and the boat shifted.' "'Fortunately, I was taking a turn around the deck, and I fixed it. "'My watch starts soon. "'You know what to do. Tell the... the uh, tell my cousin.' "'The lie was so convincingly told, Estrella almost believed it. "'Adramin's black-clad figure reappeared, "'paused at the top of the stern companionway, and then disappeared below. "'Estrella joined Mirac and the steersman, "'until Adramin reappeared and formally took over the watch.' Later, when he reached his cabin, Estrella lay in the dark, feeling the motion of the ship move his body in the bunk, just as it had when the Molly had weathered the storm on her way south to Teenmouth. That night he had slept after his hours of bailing, confident in Roaring Jack and his crew. Tonight his mind raced around what he had seen and heard. From their first meeting it had been clear that Adramin was not happy to have found an unexpected cousin. Since then, Despite being constantly, overwhelmingly busy each long day and far into the night, Estrella had responded to Adramin's taunts as a game, which of late he seemed to be winning. He tried to put the situation in words that he whispered into the darkness of his cabin, imagining himself explaining to Lindy as if she were with him. I knew from the start that Adramin wasn't happy to have me aboard, and that Oron only wanted me for what I could do but I went along with them for the sake of what I was learning, and because it was like a challenge, a dare, something I had to do or think less of myself. I suppose I wanted praise, too, because I really was proud to earn the dolphins by beating Adramin in a race, even if it was mostly luck. But the more I know them, the more I see the ugliness behind their skills, their knowledge, and what they call their honour. Oron talks of loyalty, but he has murdered sailors in the name of discipline. He banished my father and Gar for questioning his blind determination to continue the wandering. And then there's Adramin's arrogant contempt for the crew. When I came on board, I hoped to find my inheritance. But now I am afraid I might. There's so much going on under the surface of life aboard this ship. One moment Mirak is teaching me how the ship works, what happened to Gar and my father, and even what the crew is thinking. And the next he's going all smarmy and denying he ever said a word about the dozens of men and women who blindly follow orders out of fear of death. They know that the ship only holds together because they keep it that way. Perhaps they know the master can't last much longer. They must be concerned that there haven't been any children in years. Perhaps some of them know Spindrift wasn't lost by accident. And now I'm one of them. I'm involved, whether I want to be or not. Listening to himself, Estrella felt his words to be inadequate and self-serving. He wondered how Lindy would feel had she heard what he had just said to the knight. 
Again he tried to conjure up memories of her, and again he failed. As the ship charged through the windstorm heading toward the city of the sea, the scuttle above his head shed a line of salt drops onto his bed. He reached for his waterproof jacket, muttering to himself, "'And now the scuttle above my bunk is leaking like a sieve.' Suddenly he was fully awake. "'Sieve!' he said aloud. "'And duck! Gar was naming the ships. Why, why didn't I think of that when Mirak first told me the ship's nicknames?' He suddenly longed for Lindy's presence so that he could tell her how much he now understood, from fresh meanings in his father's mysterious verse to unscrambling Gar's last few words. He stared upwards, trying to imagine that she, too, was below the same stars, wishing that their thoughts could meet and touch. But at the same moment as he wanted to share what he knew, he feared that she might not accept what he had become. Astraea slid gradually into sleep, wondering if he would ever see Lindy again. He had never felt so alone. You have been listening to the Astraea Trilogy, Book Two, The Men of the Sea, written and read by Seymour Hamilton. All three books are available in electronic and paper formats from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Chapters. Visit astreatrilogy.com for more about Astraea's world. This audio version is licensed under the United States Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0.